If you have your Bible this morning, open up to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, we're going to be looking at the story of the Magi, of the wise men that we just heard about in our Advent reading, and going to expand on that some. What a, a beautiful introduction to this morning's message to remind us that the coming of the Messiah, the coming of Christ, is not just for people who already know God, but it is for everybody and everywhere. As we read Matthew chapter 2, there are some very familiar events that take place. We're familiar with the the wise men that come and travel to see this this newly arrived Jesus. We're maybe even familiar with the rest of the chapter, but have pushed it out of our minds or don't want to think and talk about it much. And so we're going to read the entire chapter, Matthew chapter 2, and look at these wise men who traveled. But also, we're going to look at the, the ruthless king, the actions of an an evil man, Herod, and how he reacts to the wise men's arrival, and more importantly, to the arrival of the coming king. So let's read together Matthew chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 23 together. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising, and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests, the scribes of the people, and asked them where the Christ would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because that is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men, and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me, so that I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. After they were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother in the night, and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were under, or who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping, a great mourning. 
Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and entered the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the region of Galilee. Then he went and settled in a town called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. As we read Matthew chapter 2, we we see highs and lows, and it's really easy to gloss over the lows. When we read the Christmas story, we're focused, uh, and rightly so, on the coming Messiah, on the birth of Christ, the celebration of the shepherds, the singing of the angels, the worship of the wise men. We're focused on all the grandeur that surrounds the nativity. And we read Matthew chapter 2, and it's easy to blink and gloss over the horrific events that take place under King Herod. A few things about the the wise men before we kind of delve into what we're going to be be looking at this morning. A few misconceptions that I always like to to clear up. Uh, This is really the part of the message that is for my wife. Do you guys ever do anything just for your spouse? Anybody just, I do this just to be nice. This is really for Hannah. She is passionate and adamant. Not enough husband's hands went up, by the way. It's Christmas for crying out loud. So the the wise men, often referred to some translations as magi, and in some songs, incorrectly referred to as kings, come and visit Jesus. But the picture that we have of the shepherds and the angels and the wise men all worshiping this newly born Jesus is wildly inaccurate. The shepherds were present for the newborn Jesus. The angels were present for the newborn Jesus, but the magi, the wise men, were not there for probably about two years. And this is something that my wife gets passionate about, so much so that we have a nativity set up in our house, a beautiful nativity. Uh, We've got all the pieces present in our wonderful willow tree nativity. It looks amazing. And it's missing the three wise men. She refuses to put them there. I asked her one year, what if I got those for you as a gift? What if I bought you the wise men for your nativity to complete the set? She said, well, you can give them to me, but I'm putting them halfway across the house because they've not arrived yet. Okay, I'll put them somewhere else. It's important for us to see this for for this reason. Because the the fact that it has been two years gives us a, a reasoning for why Herod massacres children the age that he did. He asks when the star appeared at the moment of his birth. It took them time to travel. And Herod looks and he says, okay... Two years and under. In this window, this child has been born. It has been at least two years or around two years since the birth of Christ. And that gives us a peek into the the mindset of why he chooses the age and massacre that he does. Another misconception is that we we have uh, the number of wise men who come and visit Jesus and Mary and Joseph. Of course, we've sung the song. While these magi, these wise men, most likely were not kings, we know the song very well. How many kings, according to the song, come and visit the baby Jesus? Three. Well, first of all, he's not a baby. And second of all, we have no clue how many wise men there are. I believe that, well, I know that there were more than one wise man. Because it's not wise man, it's wise men. There were at least two. We know that for sure. 
We know that they brought three gifts. So that's where we get the number three. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But really, why would Herod be worried about three random wise men showing up in Jerusalem? And why in this passage would it say all of Jerusalem was frightened with him? The presence of three people does not frighten a king. The presence of three people does not shock a city. I believe because of the way that people would have traveled, because of the caravan it would have required for safety, because of all the grandeur that surrounded the nativity, I believe the number is probably closer to 300 than three. I I can't prove that. Nowhere in scripture does it tell us. But I believe there was a great deal of people traveling with this group. There were the wise men. There were their their servants who would come and assist them. There were a great number of animals. And when, say, 300 people show up in your city looking for a new king, it strikes fear. Not just in the king, but in the whole city. And so we start to get an idea and a picture on, on the ruthless mentality of King Herod why he was so panicked, why he was so worried, and why he took such drastic measures. The book of Proverbs has a a parallel or or maybe a a contrast between what the writer will say is wisdom and what he calls folly. There's these polar opposites. And if you read the book of Proverbs, you'll see wisdom is personified this way and folly is the opposite. A wise man does this, but a fool does that. And wisdom and folly are always separated and polar opposites. And I I believe this morning what we see in Matthew chapter 2 is a personification of wisdom in the wise men and a personification of folly in King Herod. I believe we see a, a picture of wisdom and the salvation it leads to and folly and the corruption it leads to. So this morning, as we look at Matthew chapter 2, I want to compare these two men, or these two groups of men, the wise men and the ruthless king. And in doing so, I want us to ask ourselves, do we fall in the category of wise or foolish? Are we people who consider ourselves in pursuit of wisdom or in pursuit of folly? And this morning, do we identify more with the wise men or with King Herod. This morning, I've got three truths I think we can pull out of Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to look at at the contrast between foolishness and wisdom as we go through. The first thing I want to look at is this. Folly pursues protection. Folly pursues protection, but wisdom pursues worship. Wisdom pursues worship. I think a key word in, in these phrases here is that word pursue. Because wisdom and folly don't always just happen. It requires an effort. We do something and we act. I have random thoughts that pop into my mind all the time. As a matter of fact, even in the middle of sermons, there are times that that things pop into my head uh, that I think I should say. and, And sometimes, because my mouth moves faster than my brain, sometimes they come out. But most of the time, I do good at keeping them trapped in. Again, I I applauded my wife earlier for her diligence to to know what the word of god says and teach it she also is really good at giving me the look 
when she knows the thought has popped in my head and she knows it should not come out of my lips. As a matter of fact, she's kind of giving it to me now. So I'm going to wrap this illustration up. There's a difference between the thoughts that we have, the ideas we have, and even the desires we have and the actions that we take. There's a difference between temptation and sin. There's a difference between, between thoughts and words. There's a difference between inaction and action. And while we may have some really foolish thoughts, many of us pursue our own protection, pursue our own folly. When we find ourselves fools, all we care about is ourselves. When we choose a foolish nature, all we care about is keeping ourselves protected. We want to make sure number one is looked out for. Nobody else matters and nothing else matters. We need to know that we are okay and all right. This is how a fool views the world. It's all about me. And when Herod sees these men come and show up in his city, his first thought is, I'm king and I cannot be challenged. Now, we don't see him tell the wise men that. As a matter of fact, he's very crafty, but we can get an insight into his heart as we read Matthew chapter 2, verse 3. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Why was Herod so disturbed at the presence of these wise men? Why was Herod so afraid that these, these men show up in his city? Well, it goes back to this idea of protection. Because Herod was a partial Jew. He had a Jewish lineage. He was more of a Samaritan and kind of a, a mix, but, but he was a Jew. And the people despised him because as someone of a Jewish lineage, he was working for the Roman government and doing what the Romans wanted him to do. But because he was of a Jewish lineage, he, he claimed the right as king of Jerusalem and was given that title by the empire of Rome. This was somewhat newly acquired for Herod. At the time of Matthew's account here, we see Herod had not been king for, for, centuries, or for decades, but instead probably more for a few years. And in that time, he had been passionate about retaining his kingship. This isn't the first time he had done something drastic like murder innocent children. This isn't the first time he had acted ruthless. And he was determined that nobody would take his kingship away. He had worked too hard. He had been too political. He had done all of the right things all of his life to, in his mind, earn his spot as king of Jerusalem. And now, now there's a caravan of people asking where the new king has been born. Asking where, where the king that has been prophesied has been born. And this deeply disturbed Herod. He was looking out for his own protection and his own skin, his own kingship. Folly and foolishness will do that. It will cause us to look inward and to worry more about what, what we can get as opposed to what we can give. This happens not only with other people, but in our relationship with God. Foolishness ultimately makes worship about us. Foolish ultimately makes our relationship with God about what we can get. Lord, what will you give me? Why don't I have these things? God, I've been faithful. How come you have not rewarded me? 
You see, the foolish heart is bent towards protecting our own interests. But the wise men, in contrast, weren't about protecting themselves, but about worshiping, but about giving God the glory in all things. That's why we read in verse 11 that they entered the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshiped him. They had pursued this worship. This wasn't something that they had read about and from a distance thought, glory to God, let's praise God where we're at. They gathered their belongings and for what seems to be around two years, traveled following a star in hopes that the prophecy was right and the star would lead them to this new king. It wasn't enough for them to read about it. It wasn't enough for them to hear about it. They had to go experience the new king. This was a pursuit of worship. It it breaks my heart to to see people who who desire to worship God, but don't make corporate worship a priority. It it breaks my heart to, to see people who say things like, I can worship God anywhere. I don't have to be in church. Which, by the way, is a true statement. And use that as an excuse not to pursue the corporate worship of the Jesus Christ, God, Messiah, Emmanuel, who came to save us. It breaks my heart that we get so passive in our worship. I saw something I shared last night on Facebook. I should have put it up on the screen and I didn't. But, but I really, I enjoyed the context of it and it just got a little chuckle out of it. It was pictures from the movie Home Alone. And it said, Kevin McAllister was left home alone for three days and he still managed to make it to church. You can make it there too. I thought, that's pretty good, you know. But do we pursue worship or do we, do we worship when it's convenient? See, we like to think that we're wise. We like to think in our relationship with God, we pursue wisdom. But more often than not, we pursue our own comfort and our own self-interest. What we pursue is that we're tired and we need to rest, so we're going to sleep in. What we pursue is there's a sale and if we don't catch it today, we're going to miss it, so we better make it. What we pursue is, this is the only day I have to spend and get things done around the house. What we pursue is the things that we perceive that we need and what we desire. As opposed to, like the wise men, pursuing worship. This morning as we examine both the wise men and Herod, I wonder who we identify with. Are we more about protecting our own interests and our own comforts? Are we pursuing a genuine worship? Not just at church, but in our everyday lives, working diligently, traveling wherever we need to travel to experience the worship of this king. The second thing we learn about folly and wisdom is that folly delivers terror, but wisdom delivers blessing. Folly delivers terror, but wisdom delivers blessing. What you find when we act in a foolish manner and start to to only concern ourselves with our own interests is that we get paranoid. We get worried about what other people are saying about us. We get worried about if we're keeping up with what people think we should have. We get worried about whether or not we have our fair share and we have lives of fear. Wisdom, on the other hand, isn't about getting our fair share or protecting our interests. It's about worshiping the one true God. And instead of delivering a fear or a terror of not having enough, it actually is a a life that delivers blessing to others. We see this terror that Herod 
ultimately brings in verse 16. Then Herod, when he realized that he had been outwitted by the wise men, flew into a rage and gave orders to massacre all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under. This passage this morning and this year as I read it has struck a chord with me that hasn't in years past. And maybe, well, not maybe, surely it's because I I have a boy who is two years old or under who would have been included in this massacre by Herod. And it's easy to gloss over and and read that Herod did this horrible thing, but move on to the other events. Sometimes we need to stop and ponder the terror that our selfishness and our folly brings. Now, this is a massacre that, that certainly is a massacre in every sense of the word. But this massacre probably involved what estimates are around uh, a dozen or two dozen boys in and around Jerusalem who would have been killed. This isn't just a a handful, a a baby here, a child there, which would have been horrific enough. This was was dozens of children. Not only that, but but this was described as a a massacre. It was a, a ruthless decision to go and find these children and execute them out of fear. I've got to be honest, I think this passage strikes me not only because I have a son under two years old, but also because I identify so much with Herod in our first truth. I realize that my foolishness often causes my heart to look out for myself. And when we're pursuing our own protection, what lengths do we end up going to to deliver that protection? My fear is that we gloss over this passage thinking Herod is a wicked, horrible man and forget that our own hearts are bent oftentimes in the same way. Maybe not to the extent of carrying out murder, but to the extent that we examine ourselves and go, what wicked, horrible thoughts have I, have I had? Just this past week or so, we were talking about speeding tickets that some of us have had, and, um, and I've had more than I care to confess to you this morning. It's been a while, but I've had more than I care to share. One in particular, I was, was driving back from um, about 15 minutes away when we lived in Kentucky. I had gone to Frankfurt and was coming back to Lawrenceville. It was about, I don't know, midnight. The roads were wide open. It was a four-lane highway, and, and I, I didn't think anybody was on the roads. I just wanted to get home. And so I'm in my pickup truck, and I've got it going as fast as it can go. Now, it's probably hitting triple digits when I put my foot down all the way, and I'm just wanting to get back. I want to turn this 15-minute drive into a a seven-minute drive if I can, right? Because that seven minutes is really going to help me. As I'm going, I can see in the distance with the lights off a car sitting in the median, and I just knew that was a police car. I knew, and there was no chance of me going from 100 down to 50, 55 in the amount of time that I've seen this car. And so the thought pops in my mind. The horrible thought that we get. And that thought was, as fast as I'm going and he's sitting still, if I keep going, cut my lights and pull off to a side road, he'll never find me. That is the folly (laughs) of selfish protection. I'm thankful, by the way, wisdom won out, and I realized that that would have been much more horrific. So I I kept my lights on, I pulled over the side of the road and, and... and got my ticket. However, I sit back and I think, 
How in the world could I ever let myself think to do something so slick, so sly, and so deceptive? Why would I? I I was in ministry. Why would I as a minister sit there and think I can outrun or outwit law enforcement? I can get away with this if I just. And I'm reminded that my own heart often pursues a foolishness, pursues my self-interest, and really leaves me in fear and in terror. I wonder how many of us live in fear, have this terror and stress and anxiety in our lives, worried about, about our perception or about what we have or don't have because we're so concerned with pursuing our own self-interest. Instead, wisdom, when it pursues a worship of God, when it pursues a true, genuine giving, is one that produces and delivers blessing. It looks not to our own hearts, but it looks towards others. And that's why in verse 11, when the wise men come, they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Valuable possessions. By the way, this is all God-ordained. When we're in wisdom, when we're pursuing God, we see that God kind of works things out. These are not just random gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They have a lot of uh, allegory to the end of Christ's life when he would die, but you know what else they do is they provide a tangible, practical gift for Mary and Joseph. Because these were perfect things to carry with you when you were traveling to use as currency. Gold, certainly, but also valuable things like frankincense and myrrh. They were perfect to be able to, to keep with you. And when you needed to change or exchange or purchase, you would have kind of like a traveler's check, these worked like. And wouldn't you know it, that shortly after this, God was going to call Mary and Joseph to get up, to leave, and to travel to Egypt. And they were going to need some traveler's checks. They were going to need some currency. They were going to need a way to purchase the things they need on their route to Egypt. Isn't it amazing how God blesses us when we pursue him in worship? Isn't it amazing how he blesses us when our hearts are not bent towards ourselves, but are bent towards him? You see, folly always delivers terror and fear, causes us to to worry and stress. But wisdom... Wisdom provides us with, with blessing. And as we, we wrap up, we're reminded about the nature of folly and wisdom. Folly is inherited by all. Every single person is born a fool. But wisdom is made available to all. As we read through the Advent reading this morning, I love how it was written and how it was read. The Batons did a wonderful job of sharing that with us this morning. It focused on who the wise men were. And the most important thing we can remember about the wise men as it relates to who they were is not whether they were kings or astrologers, but the fact that they were Gentiles. And let's not miss this. Because all through the Old Testament, God dealt almost solely with one country, one nation, one people, the people of Israel. And now in the birth of Christ... God is dealing with the entire world. Gentile is just another word for non-Israelite, non-Jewish, everyone else. And God has now opened the door. And the reason why wisdom needs to be made available to all, salvation needs to be available to all, is because this folly is inherited by all people. 
This happened way back in Genesis chapter 3. This happened all the way back at the beginning of our reading of Scripture when Adam and Eve made the decision to rebel against God and bring sin into the world. From that moment forward, every one of their descendants, which includes you and I, inherit that same foolish sin nature. It is inherited by everyone. Paul explains it in Romans chapter 5 in great detail. As a matter of fact, if you're taking notes, write Romans chapter 5 in your notes and read this later on this afternoon. A couple of verses from Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12, he explains, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. The truth is, every single one of us was born a sinful, foolish human being. We like to think that babies are innocent. They've certainly never acted on their sin. They certainly have never committed any sort of of sinful act or sinful desire. But every single baby who has ever been born has inherited the same nature. It's the nature of their mom and their dad, which is the nature of their parents and the nature of their parents. It's the nature of Adam and Eve, and it's the nature of sin. It's a foolish desire to look out for ourselves. Paul tells us very clearly, sin entered the world through one man, through Adam, and it spread to all of his descendants so that all people are marked with the curse of this foolish sin. And he goes on to explain in Romans chapter 5, verse 18, So then through one trespass or one sin, there's condemnation for everyone. Everyone deserves to be punished for sin. So also through one righteous act, there is justification leading to life for everyone. What Paul is saying here is just as one man brought sin into the world, there is one man who has come to eradicate that sin. Just as condemnation came through the one person, Adam, salvation comes through the one person of Jesus Christ. See, we all inherit this sinful nature, this desire to protect ourselves, our own self-interest. We all inherit the foolish heart. But God has made salvation, the wisdom of pursuing Him in worship, available to every single person, Jew and Gentile, Man and woman, adult and child, every race, every language, every nation, every person, we all have that available wisdom and available salvation. God's desire is that you pursue Him in worship. Nowhere in Scripture do we read that Jesus Christ has come to this earth so that every single person will be saved. As a matter of fact, we we sadly read the opposite. Because there are many people like Herod who make the decision to pursue their own folly, to pursue their own desires. There are many people who make the decision to reject the wisdom of salvation. This morning, though, I I want to share with you that the, the salvation is available. Through one man, Jesus Christ, you can pursue Him in worship by trusting Him as Savior and forgiver of your sins and as Lord or King of your life. This morning, as we look at these two individuals or groups, these wise men and these, this ruthless king, I wonder who we identify with. 
I hope that all of us recognize our identity with the ruthless king of the selfish heart. But my prayer is that we would leave here and all of us would leave identifying with the wisdom of the men who pursued God in worship, who trusted him fully, who cried out to him for forgiveness of sins and trusted him as king of their lives. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, I thank you for for the wise men. I thank you that you've called them because it's a reminder that you've called us. That your salvation hasn't come for just a few select people, but you have brought salvation for the entire world. Lord, I pray this morning that we would pursue you in our worship. Not passively or, or just with our tongues, but through our lives and through our actions. That we would trust you to forgive our sins. That we would trust you to lead our lives as our King and our Lord would submit ourselves to you in all things. Lord, we thank you for the wise men, but we thank you even more so for who they worshipped, for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the salvation that he brings through his life, his death, and his resurrection for us. And Lord, I pray that we would pursue with all of our heart, for all of our lives, a worship of the one true King. It's in your name we pray. Amen.